Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this, this is SITREP. SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs discussion from BFBS Radio. You are very welcome. Well, welcome to Christmas at the SITREP round table. No turkey, no sprouts, but crackers, as this is the season of giving and taking, to be followed by that excellent custom of good manners, the thank you letter. So we're asking the simple question of Yuletide. What do you want for Christmas? By that we mean, if Santa and his elves do aircraft, night sights, Merlins, Type 45s and the like, what bit of kit, what equipment would all three services wish for in the 2010 stocking, maybe beyond? Incidentally, when we say three services, we have bracketed the Royal Navy and Royal Marines as one service, as I'm sure they are. Now, um, the writers of our rather grown-up letters do whoever is the Father Christmas of that desolate white-out known as the procurement. God, who writes this? Um... From the RUSI, the director of the Military Sciences Programme, and himself a former naval person, Michael Codner, another sometimes end-user, Royal Marine Major General, Julian Thompson. From the University of Salford, the professor of naval history, and the director of the University's Centre for International... Security and War Studies. That's good, isn't it? Uh, Dr Eric Grove. Um, the three fundamental questions, I suppose, is what do we want, what do we think that each of these services would like for Christmas, what might be taken from one service, Here's the catch to make possible a present for another. And to whom should we say thank you? The MOD, the Treasury, the Chiefs of Staff, or even even public opinion? I want first, though, Michael uh, Codner, um, when we say procurement, can you explain the procurement process? Because a lot of people hear this term procurement, they really don't know what it means. Well, the word procurement, uh, you could say, has gone a little bit out of date. They all talk acquisition now, but the procurement bit of acquisition is uh, deciding uh, what you need in the way of equipment uh, and then working out what choices there are to try and deliver that capability, then uh, developing the capability, then manufacturing it and then getting it into service. That's the procurement bit. The rest of it is looking after it in service, changing it if it needs to be changed so it can do different things, mm-hmm. uh, make it better. When you say change it, I mean uh, modernise it. Moderni- or... Modernisation um, uh, uh, and quite substantial changes in strategic environment, which means it's got to do very different things. So it may not be modernisation, it may be retooling for a different purpose. And then right at the end is deciding what you're going to do with it, which if it's a, a nuclear submarine with masses of spent nuclear fuel on it in itself is quite a problem uh, which and it's the in-service stuff which has had the more recent focus certainly in the last 10 years that's because there's such a huge cost but it's spread out over many years and in the old days that wasn't considered up against the original price of the equipment so that's right. why we have to acquisition and not just procurement Julian this, this t- the terminology aside for the moment anyway uh, let's take new orders because of change of the operational <coughs> environment. That is perhaps one of the most difficult things to once you've got the equipment. Well, it's, it's the most difficult thing to decide what equipment you want. I mean, a very historical example is World War Two, and when it was only nine, no less, six months before the war started, it was decided to send an expeditionary force to the continent. Up till then, the army's job had been home defence and imperial defence, and so you equipped it accordingly. And so suddenly you've got a very short time indeed to wholly re-equip it in a different way to fight a different sort of war. And this is the problem with it. What are you going to do? Therefore, what equipment do you need in simple terms? Eric? Well, the the whole acquisition process now takes such an 
an, a long time. And when you compare it within the past, for example, HMS, HMS, HMS Dreadnought, which perhaps was a slightly special case in the, in the 1900s, this was only about two years from initial conception to coming into service, and it was a revolutionary war. Why could you do it so quickly? An interesting question. I have, often, I have often reflected on that. In a sense, it was because the problems were simpler. They were more mechanical uh, rather than trying to integrate electronic systems and this kind of thing. The equipment was, was generally simpler. It didn't have all these sort of high tech uh, uh, add-ons which any modern piece of equipment has to have. But I can't help feeling that the process itself has become intensely bureaucratic. And also, of course, governments who, are, who, who have been reluctant to spend money don't mind projects going on forever because it means that they don't have to spend as much money as they would otherwise have to, have to do. We also probably had a lot more money than in those days. Relatively, yes, although actually there was something of a crisis in, in, uh, in naval expenditure at that mm. time. In fact, uh, uh, the Admiralty had been told pretty firmly that there wasn't enough for a three-power standard and perhaps they ought to start thinking of new ways of exerting sea power. What about, uh, Julian, the idea of anticipating what you'll need in the future, future requirements? That, again, is when you look at the politics and the the lack of, perhaps, strategic picture of knowing what you're going to do, who decides that? Well, it it should be decided by by government, saying this is what we're going to do in the future. The, The problem is that often they'll say this is what we're going to do and that doesn't happen, something else happens, and you need a different bit of kit for that. Because of the long time it takes to get a bit of kit into service, the world has changed. And, and getting, say, a new fighter into service that is on a drawing board, say, in 1970, 1980, and just appears in service in 2001. So it can be a 25, 30-year process? Yes, it can be. And you've got to build flexibility into your platforms because these platforms, ships, aircraft, tanks, will stay around for quite a long time. So, so you've got to actually make them process. inherently flexible. It can be, yes. I mean, a, a big warship like an aircraft carrier is, it, is in service for half a century. Mm. Yep. If I, if I say to myself, well, um, no government, no government, A, wants to commit itself, but no government actually has the expertise, Michael, to understand what... Uh, is wanted. It may say, look, we intend to be in Afghanistan, for example, for 10, 15 years. In theory, only the military can say, well, if that's the case, this is what we'll need. But the um, whole acquisition system is, is, um, a, is a team effort, or should be a team effort, between the military and so-called procurement experts of one source and another, people who are good at project management and good at dealing with industry. And, of course, industry is meant to have this big role as well. Um, the, the problem has been in trying to get this complex management structure working to have it the proper leadership so that if it needs to change or things need to be done quickly, there is someone to say, get on and do it. But at the same time, to deal with all the little bits and pieces that you have to do, so you don't just build something which can't even interface with all the other things around it because one person's led on it and doesn't care about anything else because he's not motivated to consider the interoperability issues. And Julian, I mean, classically, it's not what you, as one country, builds. It's what somebody else is going to build because you're going to have to operate 
alongside somebody else. There's no good build, building something, or you hope there's no good some, building something which hasn't got, I don't know, for example, a fuel coupling that you can you can refuel from each other in, in the case, let's say, of an of a armoured vehicle. Yes, I mean, there's, there's certain interoperability and a huge amount of work goes into what the buzzword interoperability. I must say it doesn't actually always necessarily work terribly well because people tend to make things that they think they make better than their neighbours. What also is important is what is the opposition making? Uh, what sort of weapons are they producing? That, to a degree, drives what you produce. I mean, you don't see it in the situation we're in at the moment where we're fighting the Taliban. They don't produce anything. They just get kitted out with whatever happens they can get their hands on. But in a situation like the Cold War, we were hugely worried and concerned about what the Soviets were producing, what capability their aircraft, what their tanks could do, what their ships could do. And so we had to produce something that could take them on. Mm. And, and the problem with that is you're then looking for leading-edge technology, and when you take use um, advanced technology, the stuff that's just being developed, there's high risk because it may not work. And how long do you spend trying to make sure it works? And when you get it into service and you find that it's already been overtaken by new technologies, I mean, these are all the problems, and these are reasons why projects often expanded, delayed, because all this risk is put in. It's not taken out at the beginning when it needs to be taken out. Although the de-risking process itself can take a great deal of time. Right. This is a and, and, and it's one reason, I think, why, why these these, uh, the, all, all these projects go on so interminably. And the Eurofighter demonstrates... The, uh, Explain, Eric, the about Eurofighter, because a lot of people, in fact, won't know what the Eurofighter, Eurofighter was all about. now called the Typhoon, is, um, it, it was when it was first conceived, uh, which was in the <laughs> 1970s, I think, wasn't it? Uh, was designed to outmanoeuvre the Soviet jets that were expected in service. Hence, it was, it's a very agile single-seater. But now, it's a generation past in what it can do. We now have moved to a fifth generation of fighter aircraft, as it's often said. And, and Typhoon's a fourth generation fighter. And it's only just coming into service. And I think uh, a, a close study of that project, I think, demonstrates a, a lot of the factors. And it's an international project, which makes it unwieldy, but it That's does, an important point, yes. yeah. um, and, and so on. But he, here we have a wonderful aircraft. If it had come into service in the 1980s, it would have been the answer to the RAF, RAF's prayer. But now it's coming into service, and they're trying to make it do things that it was never designed to do. It's a pretty good aircraft, but it, it, it demonstrates all the problems of designing for it for the last war. It was designed for the Cold War, and now it's... It's uh, in, in, in touched on current a, operations. You touched on a piece which Michael agreed there uh, with, and that is that um, it's uh, an international project or a European project, as the title suggests. I mean, so was what it was first called, I think, MRCA, wasn't it? The Tornado. The, the tornado. Yeah, yeah. And that w became a bit of an embuggerance factor, the fact that you could not uh, bring your own designs, your own... You had to agree with everybody else what... Should happen. The great thing about international projects is they they are uncancelable. They are virtually uncancelable. That's certainly one reason why <coughs> why certain players like the services yes. are very keen on have been very keen because once you're committed with other nations, for instance, Eurofighter, we went for 232. Part of the reason to have a go for that number and say well, that's what we'll have is to ensure that the Germans took part. And at the end of the day, it's advantages of scale, and because we couldn't have built all of them on our own, we couldn't have afforded this. But at the same time, you have all the problems of agreeing what capabilities you're all going to have, and if you want different things out of it, how you get some 
agreement on that um, and, and then deciding who's going to build what bits, the whole just yes. for tour yeah. business, which can make it very inefficient. So the premium, there's a premium on interoperability, on, on, on international collaboration, which has to be less than the advantages of scale to make it worth doing. But in a fast-changing international situation yeah. like we had, had had with the end of the Cold War, mm. this very uncancelability becomes a problem, because mm. you might actually want to cancel it, but you can... Or reduce the numbers. Or reduce the numbers significantly, yes. And I mean, it's a jolly good aircraft, absolutely. and it can be used it's for lots and lots of different things. Absolutely. It's not that it's out of date no. by any means, it's just it wasn't built for what it's going to be used and you don't always. I Just think it was um, a, a former Sink um, Fleet um, who said, uh, we don't always fight the first 11, you know. That's right, but the Typhoon was built to fight the first 11. Yeah. Uh, now, we won't get a fifth generation jet, uh, uh, if and when, <laughs> uh, until we get the F- F-35, the, which is the aircraft which is going to go into the aircraft carrier, assuming we get the aircraft carrier. And, and, and this, is, this is a next generation, given its connectivity and given its stealth. And that's why we, people talk about a fifth-generation aircraft. And so we are bringing into service an aircraft which is good, excellent, but actually, a critic might argue, it's verging on the o- almost obsolescent compared with what you might get if you, if you had a fully modern project. Yeah, um, and Julian, the, the in, the, there's a group in this process which uh, wants to change things all the time. I mean, we, we tend to have a hack at the, the, the ministers and the, and the uh, civil servants. But the military is sort of saying, mm, no, 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 I think we need this to be bolted on now, and they want to move the goalposts or whatever the cliche is. Well, there's, there's, this, there's this gold plating problem, as it's called, which is trying to put extra things on to try to make it better and better and better. And this is partly not the fault of the military in the sense that they are being stupid. It's because someone has come up with a brilliant idea or a new piece of kit that if you put this on, it would increase the capability of the aircraft. And this is because it's taking so long to produce, 30 years... Well, 30 years, the scientific world isn't standing still, and science doesn't advance in a sort of line like a bunch of soldiers. It, it advances erratically, so someone invents something which overtakes everything else that you've just thought of. This is the problem. Uh, Eric, go back to your early 20th century example mm-hmm. of, of, of the dreadnoughts. Yes. Um, there, you can do a, produce a ship, probably a very fine ship, was it? It was, yeah. Yes, in two years. Now, if you it was only a year and a day under construction, actually. Yes. But, 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 but two but, years yes, from conception. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so is there an example that we should perhaps follow there? And that's to say, right, we need, as in the case of the Type 45, uh, we need a ship. Let's build the platform and let's get that into some sort of service and then we'll bolt on afterwards. Is there a case for that? I think there is a lot to be said for that, yes. And, and, and in, in effect, it's inherent in the current situation where electronics are improving at a huge rate and the platforms tend to hang around for quite a long time. So perhaps if we built with perhaps the M-word modularity in mind, perhaps, but if we built which I think we do up to a point with modernisation fitted for but not with, which is also very dangerous because it means you don't get as, as capable a ship as you or other platform as you might wish. But I think we that's a that's a very good way of of trying to sort of uh, uh, capitalise on this electronic progress which is going on, which is quite massive, and keep and, and keep the platforms running for a long period with this new equipment and new sensors. Michael, did uh, historically, um, if we after World War one after the 1914-18 war 
And with all the pressures that were there after that, with people saying, are we waiting for the next war to happen quite quickly or whatever, did the whole idea of acquisition procurement, what are we going to call it, did it change very much? Uh, I'm not the best person to answer that, actually. I would defer to Eric. Well, after World War One, of course, you had, you had the 10-year year rule, yes. which said there won't be a war for 10 years. Ten years. the 10-year window moved on and on It was on. made rolling. So there was no acquisition, because yeah. they just said, sorry, no money, 10-year Well, there rule. was a bit. There was I a mean, bit, there were some new battleships built, yeah. two of them, and, and, in fact, Britain was the only power to actually build, only major naval power to build, um, to build battleships in the 1920s. Well, for some time, there were laws against other people building them. There were, but we managed to get in the treaty that, that we were allowed to modernize ones with 16-inch guns mm. uh, because the Japanese and the Americans were, uh, had uh, had ships with guns of similar calibre. Um, we did, and, sorry? I think we did I mean, face a... Um, well, there was a similar sort of decision made um, uh, at the end of the, um, of the Cold War. But we are not going to face... Uh, an enemy who is going to attack the United Kingdom directly and therefore we do not need the forces to protect the United Kingdom and in the century of 1998 Mm -hmm. the big switch there was... This was the famous strategic defence review. The big switch there or the confirmation of the trend was away from this is what we give to NATO and that defines what we do to protect us in the context of Europe uh, switch to what we need to do stuff and expedition But we we still had you see we had all this equipment in all three services mm. that we'd built for the Cold War. Yeah. Um, we couldn't just, you know, take 900 tanks and say, well, what are we going to do? Oh, we'll just put police aware notices on them and park them down the 303 and that would be OK. Well, we you couldn't done. just disband. We could have done. Why didn't we? We didn't. Well, the, the, there are reasons of, as you say, legacy equipment and, and, and regiments, battalions, well, regiments that... Um, that, that uh, use this equipment um, uh, and it's a very hard decision then to say we are going for a totally agile specialist infantry um, based uh, army uh, supported by the other services um, on the Paris Royal Marines model that could have been the outcome of street defence review but there are all the legacy issues and the services have their own ownership of these and the army in particular of course it's very federal in that sense you've got mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and the cavalry are a very important part <laughs> Of, of, of that federal organisation. They wanted their horses. Clout. You need your horses, yes. yes. Uh, we're facing that decision now, and we'll probably come on to that. Yeah. Um, Julian, what about after um, the Second World War? Still had the great responsibilities of empire, or, in, or, or colonial responsibilities, ignoring India for the moment. Uh, we still had, right up until the end of the 50s, a large conscript army... Um, bit in the Navy, a few in the Royal Air Force. Um, we also were in the middle of austerity, weren't we? And so there was a reluctance to spend, but we had enormous responsibilities. That must have been extraordinarily difficult to plan uh, procurement of what we might we were wanting to do. Yes, in fact, but we not only had responsibilities, but of course we had the Cold War. So we had this 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 option of a, of a the Soviet army coming over the, the inner German border and attacking us in Germany and indeed everyone else in in NATO at the same time having to run what was effectively the rundown of empire uh, over a period of some twenty years with lots of quite small conflicts some of them actually quite bloody uh, and then you had part of the Cold War but away to a flank Korea for three years which was a, a hot war and so yes. We were, the services were very busy, they were very big. Uh, procurement, in a sense, 
wasn't all that difficult in that you, you knew what your enemy was. Your enemy was the Soviet Union, and so you could match your equipment to, to fight him. Um, in the immediate post-war period, there was a 10-year planning assumption. It wasn't quite the same as the 10-year rule, uh, which stated that... Post-Second World War it, Yes, um, it, which stated that it was unlikely um, that the Soviet Union would, be, would go to war before 1957. And we planned on this. And in fact, it's very interesting. We, our nuclear program worked extremely well. We did have the V-bombers in service, some of the most advanced aircraft of their day, in service with nuclear bombs by 1957. There was also, but, but of course, there was a huge amount of equipment about. Uh, and, 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 and it was still useful. I mean, uh, Lee-Enfield rifles were extremely useful in the kinds of campaigns that yeah. you're talking about. I mean, we, we eventually went on to... The, Went on to the self-loading rifle in, in the well in the late fifties, early yeah. early sixties. But a lot of the equipment was still usable, and so it was kept. Um, a lot of warships were actually unfinished, and they were finished with new equipment, actually with new radars, new action data systems, angle decks, steam catapults, and so on. Um, uh, so it so it was a sort of mixed mixed policy of going for high tech on this 1957 timescale which of course sped up a bit with the Korea war uh, and actually trying to make the most out of out of what we had which i think on the whole worked quite well although the defects in amphibious shipping which came up at suez had to be solved quite rapidly but again by using existing aircraft carriers mm. it was quite economical really and um, cru cruisers and aircraft carriers continued for a long time after yes they did the all i haven't mentioned of course is the fact that after uh, 1949, after that Second World War, of course, was the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty mm -hmm. Alliance. Um, did that have any effect on the sort of equipment we have? Yes, or? very. I mentioned rifles. We actually had to adopt a NATO standard calibre. 7.62? Yes, so we had to give up 303. And we thought of going, in fact, for a weapon not too different from the, SA, from the current SA-80. But, in fact, we didn't in the end, and we took a NATO standard Belgian design FN rifle, which became the self-loading rifle, mm. and, and and that actually caused a great deal of upheaval because we needed new equipment to fire the new ammunition, modifying Bren guns and this kind of thing. What NATO did, and this is after military structure was formed in the early 50s, it, it set out very clearly for each nation what they needed to provide. There was a bargain done over the bits of Germany they were meant to protect and the other roles they had north for us the um, eastern Atlantic etc uh, and our nuclear bits and we had committed to capabilities which we then had to deliver and we were interrogated by NATO as to where we were going end of the Cold War the very rigid um, NATO uh, system and the very um, punchy NATO strategic concept disappeared um, and for us, but more importantly for the smaller nations, and most European nations are in that category, there was no real overwhelming purpose to either to provide capability or to spend money on it. And also this idea of, uh, of actually having common systems, Julian, I seem to remember in the... Uh, there was the independent program group, wasn't it? An integrated program group, which the idea was that NATO would uh, get together and have the same thing. Always wanted the same transport aircraft, but nobody, but nobody would ever agree uh, what a what was needed, who should spend it, and how many they should have. Well, yes, it, uh, quite a lot of work was done on it, and, and there was a lot of goodwill on, on what I think I alluded to earlier. It was interoperability. Mm. It was, could your tank use Belgian fuel? Could Belgian weapons fire your shells, etc.? So there was quite a bit done on that. But in the end, what actually mattered 
to individual nations was their, was their own arms industry and their, the people in their countries turning out guns, shells, tanks, trucks, etc. So no country was prepared to say, well, actually, what we'll do is we'll, we'll buy all your Dutch trucks and you mm. can buy our British guns. It just didn't work that way. Mm. Michael Heseltine, I seem to remember when he was Defence Secretary in the early 1980s, 83-ish, something like that. Um, he tried to get this whole thing going again, didn't he? And he also tried to reform procurement and bought in, what was the name of the chap from Marks and Spencer's? Peter Levine, uh, P- Peter it? Levine, yes, now Lord Levine of Port Soken, yes. yes. And what, he, what Peter Levine particularly brought in was, um, was uh, uh, competition on a... a um, civil sector model uh, between the supplier, the Ministry of Defence and industry. In the, before that you had various large companies defence companies who basically had deals with the Ministry of Defence and the services before that to provide equipment and they build the Ministry of Defence for the cost of the equipment plus a sensible profit rather than bidding in a, a competitive way for what um, the capability was they needed to deliver and then <coughs> The, the best uh, product for the best price would be the one that won the competition. Um, under Peter Levine, competition was enforced very, very rigidly, and that ran right the way through, really, until um, so it was a success. Well, it, it, there is it was um, a hard battle. There is a lot of there is evidence that there were considerable savings made by the introduction of competition, so who's problems with them? And it's very difficult to verify um, the argument. But uh, certainly I I think you could say that it needed to be done. Now, whether it went too far, um, because the French never did that, uh, and when you come to 1997-98, you have a reversal to some extent in favour of partnering, and that's been taken forward almost now to another level with the defence industrial strategy of trying to get industry and um, the Ministry of Defence much closer together because you can't have competition if you don't have enough suppliers to have proper competition and therefore you've got somehow to get the benefits of both. Do you know, I'm, uh, just this couple of weeks or a few weeks ago in October, if that's a few weeks ago, um, I waded through 296 pages. In fact, I didn't. I, I had 296 pages to wade through. And I got through quite a lot of a report by Bernard Gray. Uh, those who don't know, he's a former senior Ministry of Defence man who directed the Strategic Defence Review of 1998, didn't he? I think he was political director. That's right, I think he was. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I, th- I think he was he was a political advisor, wasn't he? Political yeah. advisor, so, not George director. Robertson. Yeah, so George was, Robertson, the defence. He secretary. was on the political side rather than in the yeah. defence as, yes. as a civil servant. Yes. Yeah, and he's just uh, signed up for the Tories, I notice as well. So um, we'll see what happens there. Um, he in his report he said there is. I'm quoting here. There is a lethal weakness in government programmes and failing so bad that they harm. So still quoting, they harm our ability to conduct difficult current operations. Um, now, that's very difficult to understand, isn't it? That we've gone all this way, especially that period we were just talking about from the 80s, we've recognised the problems, um, and he's still saying, on average, new equipment arrives five years late and costs 40% more than first estimated. Now, why would that be? Anybody? Well, um, um, part of the reason is, and he refers to this, the optimum bias business, that is that both government as the, as the customer and industry as the supplier both tend towards lower prices 
um, because you're trying to get the bid on the one hand and you want to save money on the other, um, and you also want to get it into the programme as far as the customer's concerned. Um, uh, and um, optimism over the timescale and all the issues we've talked about before over hmm. it, getting the best technology and, and all of that um, all contribute to that. that I mean, that's, that, that's one reason. There is a, um, there is a more important reason. It, uh, and, uh, Professor David Kirkpatrick's written extensively on this, and this is the whole business of the problem of trying to build um, military equipment. It is an extraordinarily difficult and complex thing to do and complexity itself is getting worse and worse and worse and it's a matter of trying to scope the problem and have the right leadership to deliver it and to a large extent what uh, Bernard Gray is talking about is the management and leadership um, that Well you can see why the Tories with. though have, have, have taken him up on this because I mean they expect to get into government and they want some hotshot who really understands the business but he says for example I mean how can it take 20 years to buy a ship on aircraft or a tank, but back to well, the thing about. I mean, the, the yes, I mean, because you spend a lot of time future-proofing it, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 right. because because this ship is going to be around for a long time. And why does it cost? He says twice as much. Well, uh, be, because people are sort of saying it won't cost you so much; they'll get the contract. Well, it can be. Uh, the prop also it's that it's that governments, you know, don't like pay, don't like paying up immediately. They'd much rather have a more expensive project which takes a longer period, which they don't have to pay so much for year oh, on year. come on, they don't have to do that, surely. But, they, but the situation is often, um, it's not just that the procurement's taking a long time, it's that you come for milestones in that particular year when they come to do the budget, there isn't enough money, yes. so you delay programmes. The programmes aren't being delayed within the procurement organisation, programmes are being delayed um, through direction from the Treasury hmm. over what money is available. And so you have to roll Something is not quite so important, so it's delayed. Exactly, yes. When it's delayed, then uh, for the period it's delayed, you start to get twice the expense for that period in exactly. delivering the equipment. Yes. Julian, he says the also... The programme will be slipped, to use there. Yes. Yeah. Is, yes. is, is, the, is the expression. Sounds like our housekeeping budget at home. It's probably not much different, actually. I mean, he says that, for example, Julian, um, too many types of equipment being ordered for too large a range of tasks at too high a specification. Well, I'm not so sure that too many types of equipment. What, what's happening is, is that people are asking for equipment for a particular job. And, and sometimes, of course, people will ask for something. It takes time to produce it. And by that time, the thing for which it's meant to be produced for has gone away. You're fighting the war in a different place mm -hmm. or fighting a different kind of war or the enemy's changed his tactics or whatever. And you say to industry, uh, well, we're going to need to change this a bit. They say, well, you can do that, sir, but it'll cost gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's like our household budget. Listen, it's 4.30. Uh, you're listening to Sit Rep from BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee. Today we're asking the question, we're about to ask the question, what do you want for Christmas? What sort of equipment would all three services wish for in the 2010 stocking? Still with me in the studio from the RUSI, um, uh, Michael Codner, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson and from the University of Salford Professor Eric Grove if you've missed anything so far go to bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and listen again or you can podcast now we've we've gone over some of the, the you know if you like the uh, the caveats the conditions let's turn to that Christmas list um, we've got two naval people here 
That's not probably fair. Are you still a naval person? Um, certainly not. I'm no. the director of military He's sciences. He's impeccably okay. joined. <laughs> okay. If you prick him, he bleeds purple. I mean, they threw okay. me out as a commander. Why should I bother with that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So here's a loyal... Uh, a great loss to the service, I might say, actually. <laughs> Seriously. Mike is one of the best thinkers in the Royal Navy. I worked closely with him um, uh, when he was the major author of the Doctrine book that came out in the 1990s, and I thought, and I thought it, it was tragic that, uh, that there wasn't a place for somebody with his skills, and that perhaps tells you something about some of the problems of. Do you want to say anything nice about planning. everybody else here? I, mean, right, I, I, I could do. No, but no, come on, let's. Anyway, well, listen, no, um, but I think it, it does illustrate an important point actually that there perhaps isn't isn't a place within the services for serious thinkers. Julian's in all the history books, and you're, you're well, the uh, perfect partner. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, I want to know what if 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 there were um, uh, there were a Santa in uh, the Treasury. Ah, there's a <laughs> laugh. Um, what does the Royal Navy want for Christmas, then, Eric? It depends, I think, who you talk to, because of course the Royal Navy it's not so federal as the Army, but there are different groups within it. I suspect a submariner would like to would, oh, oh, would like another astute class submarine. Or uh, how um, many is it going to have? Uh, well, it, it's about seven, I think, something like that, to keep five running, something mm. something like that. Um, what the, they do with them? Uh, oh, well, they 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 sail around the world and threaten to fire cruise missiles. But who? At the moment, well, at, at the people that we've been firing them at recently, like in Iraq, for example, before we conquered it, and uh, an instrument of diplomacy. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which it was gunboat. It is. It is. It is very much so. Yes. And if we ever were, were engaging with operations with. Uh, against people who, have, who have, have things that float. Well, the Belgrano is a good example of what submarines can do. And intelligence. And I, intelligence gathering. And very protecting important. the strategic deterrent, the nuclear deterrent. As well. Yeah, That's right. I think, I think many people in the Navy would probably like to see the Future Surface Combatant program getting rather more resources. Explain uh, that. The Future Surface Combatant is the new frigate replacement. And uh, the plan was to build it in three variants. Or, 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 or two variants, one more heavily armed than the other, and having a third ship, which would be modular and do th the kinds of things that, that are currently done by mine countermeasures vessels, etc. Very good idea, I thought, wonderful. But you hear, you know, it's, it moves to the right, and it isn't funded, and this kind of thing. So I think a bit of funding for FSC. And of course, I can't, the third thing, of course, is the carrier programme. Make sure that that keeps on going, and make... Uh, and it, it isn't in quite such a dire state as some... Isn't that a perfect example of what certainly two of you were talking about earlier you order something you get so much money spent on it you get uh, get out clauses that are so expensive then that's it nobody can afford to cancel it well that's the case with the aircraft carrier it has been eurofighted you might say and, mm. and, and the contracts appear to be pretty firm but of course you could argue that in fact one would the have aircraft to... carriers are for the RAF aren't they not for the Navy they carry both no the carriers the are the RAF would certainly like them to be for the RAF and there's a that's quite, right. been a quite a debate over for, that and they're for both <laughs> because of course the whole idea that a, a necessary precursor to the carrier program being in the strategic defence review in the prominent position it was and it wasn't actually going to you know that was uncertain at the time was because the Navy and the RAF came together in a joint force to, to fly from the aircraft carriers. They they talked about that in the early 60s, didn't, and the result was the cancellation of the carrier. So it's it's a joint force. Julian, can I can I ask you about uh, amphibious warfare, which seems to be as important as it's ever been? What's the uh, what would you want for Christmas? Well, what I would like to see uh, is um, the aircraft carriers. I'd like to see them, but I'd like to see them capable of, of operating um, amphibious 
vessel, so I'd like to see them with, in, in crude terms with a dock or hole in the back to turn them into a, a, an LHD, to use the, hmm. um, uh, the, the in mnemonic, so that they would actually then become more capable and I believe even more acceptable Though I actually believe that the aircraft carriers are necessary anyway and will be acceptable for reasons which I'm happy to talk about if you like. Some yeah. people said, in fact, at the time that it might have been better if we'd taken the LHD option rather than the um, uh, um, attack carrier. In fact, the, Spain has done this, has a very impressive ship called the, called the uh, Rey Juan Carlos I, King uh, Juan Carlos I, which is exactly as, as Julian has described it, a, a large ship which can operate. Are they any good at it? Uh, the, the Spanish are very good at designing and building warships. Yeah. Are they any good at, at operating? It depends them. on how they use them. <laughs> well, perhaps, yes. Yeah. But the, um... Listen, I think, I hope, from Jane's Defence Weekly, listening to that, Paul Beaver, you there, Paul? Yes, I am, Chris. Greetings. Greetings to you. Listen, um, what about, in, I'm not pinning it on the Royal Air Force, but what about aircraft? What would any of the services like uh, if, if somebody could give them anything for Christmas? They'd like more resources. Uh, they'd like more funding, funding to train ground crew. Um, we're very short of ground crew in, uh, in the Royal Air Force. Uh, also, um, the REMI that supply uh, the Class 1 um, technicians to the Army Air Corps for the attack helicopter force, for example. I think the, the one thing that everyone would really like is some clarity. Um, we've got the strategy for defence just out. Um, we've got the green paper coming. We've got something called PR-10, planning round 10 then the spending round 10, then the, the strategic defence review after the election. Um, and at the moment, and we're fighting a war, um, and everything should be predicated towards winning that war, and then looking um, uh, in the SDR as to what we do afterwards, uh, and to rebalancing. And what we're not doing at the moment, of course, is, is, is rebalancing, it, it, to my mind, um, in the right way, we're sort of rebalancing. I think we're, lots of people are talking about rebalancing to pre-2003, and, and I don't think that's relevant. And we need more helicopters, of course. What and sort of helicopters? We ourselves going down to two types of combat aircraft, Typhoon and Tornado, and then um, uh, with perhaps a residue of, of, uh, of Harrier to carry us into JSF. But it, it, it's, it's a matter of money, like everybody else, after the, the pre-budget uh, report, Everybody is worried about their, their bottom line. Yeah, don't worry about this. It's all coming from Lapland. Uh, uh, in that case, we've got absolutely no problems at all then. Um, uh, then we, we just need more of everything. But, but to be serious... But you've got to have um, people to fly know, them and maintain them. Resources. Um, I think we'll see more contractorization as well. And we've got a big new training program coming through. Uh, things like, for example, an all-rotary wing course, which will save uh, time for training Chinook, uh, Merlin um, and Apache pilots. Right. What about uh, what about things like A400? Well, A400M will have. The, the question is the numbers. I under, my understanding is that the contract is drawn up in such a way um, that, that we won't get out of it, a bit like the Typhoon Tranche uh, 3 contract. So I think we drew it up, and therefore our lawyers seem to be a bit better at uh, closing loopholes. Um, we need A400M. We need something between C-17 and C-130J. Both of those are excellent aeroplanes, but there's something in the middle that's needed, uh, particularly if we're going to carry uh, the Army's new range of vehicles, the FRES vehicles. And there will be FRES. There'll be FRES Scout and there'll be FRES Utility, despite what... Uh, they won't be called FRES, probably, but there'll be those, those sort of vehicles. Um, and I reckon we'll have about 20 A400M at the end, because I think what they'll do is say, you've paid for 25, the costs have gone up, um, you can either pay us extra money for the 25 or take 20, and I think we'll, 
will take 20, quite frankly. What about the future of um, something like an AWACS? Well, the, the Royal Air Force have not been flying their, their AWACS aircraft um, uh, because there's not a lot for them to do at the moment, particularly not in the war in Afghanistan. Um, what we do need, though, is we need more of the very specialist um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance aeroplanes. Um, aeroplanes like the Sentinel, which is now operating at uh, number five squadron, operating uh, out in, uh, uh, in theatre. Um, that's a, a very um, switched-on piece of, piece of equipment. Very, very good. Um, we'll probably have to do something about replacing the Nimrods, both the reconnaissance, the electronic intelligence gatherers, and the maritime aircraft. We're going to have nine Nimrods next, well, starting next year, the Mark IVs. Um, I don't think the Mark IIs will do anything in theatre ever again. So I think we're in a position now where we need to really assess what do we need in terms of anti-submarine warfare and maritime patrol, what do we need in terms of overhead coverage for ISR, for listening in. There's a lot of, of that area. So it's the ISR, ISR side which I think will get the investment uh, in the next three or four years. Tell me, just, just uh, a thought. You mentioned Fres. Um that spent a long time for finding a difficult description of exactly what it was. There was almost a budget without it, without knowing exactly what it was going to do. You think that's going to come on on on, on stream as more or less as people have imagined? Well, I think uh, we had evidence at the Defence Select Committee last week from the Chief of Defence Material, General O'Donoghue, and he said he was hoping to get the specialist vehicle, which is the tracked scout vehicle to place Simiter, on contract February, March time. And the two contenders, BA Systems and General Dynamics, I think are up for that. So I think that will happen. Um, Quinton Davis, um, the Defence Procurement Minister, was in Korea about three weeks ago and gave a speech and said the problem with FRES was it was a perfect programme, uh, with a perfect requirement, uh, and it was a perfect mess because nobody quite knew what they wanted. Some of my um, my infantry colleagues might say to you that it was really just designed to protect the Royal Armoured Corps. Um, I think that's a scurrilous rumour. However, we do need to have um, a vehicle which is capable of doing the high end as well as the low end. And, and you know, these days, what is the high end? Well, Afghanistan's showing us that the high end can be somebody with an IED at the side of the road. So we're going to need to have um, some vehicles. There won't be a family of vehicles like Fred was, was going to be, but they'll, they'll have coherence in, in, in the logistics support. Never forget the logistics, as uh, I think... Uh, what people from Clausewitz onwards have always said. Right. Paul Beaver, thank you very much indeed. Um, Michael, lots there uh, that affects the Army and the Air Force, in fact, all the services. And uh, and one thing that stands out, um, go and get some A400Ms, go and get some new Merlins, go and get Frez, whatever, Mm. then go and get people to drive them, fly Mm. them, and maintain them. That's one of the... That ought to be on anybody's wish list. Uh, absolutely, and the, 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 for all the um, problems and the um, media criticism of the helicopter program, one of the big issues there is not numbers of helicopters per se. It's uh, having the crews to to man them and the um, and all the support that they need. There are big problems in turning helicopters around, keeping them in theatre. The number in theatre compared with the number back at home is pretty small, but the issues of just having the pilots to fly them, etc., are some of the big ones. There's a whole range of issues over FRES. There you have this family of vehicles, and that's the problem. It was one of complexity. We were trying to do all these different things, produce a completely new 
fleet of vehicles that could do everything that vehicles do um, along the American model of the future combat system, um, including all the surveillance stuff, um, the engineering stuff, the, um, the old tank rolls, everything. And it was just such a, a complex problem <coughs> that uh, it, it couldn't be solved in a... In, Whose in a idea was way. it that it should be so complex? Is it something just simply... Evolved, the gold plating, as Julian called it. Well, um, and it, you could argue that it makes absolute sense. You've got to replace all your vehicles. They're all getting too old. So <coughs> the efficient way is to have a single class which can do different things by putting different things on it. Um, the problem is this one of addressing complexity. When you have uh, too many different components to a problem, then no one can solve the problem. <laughs> uh, no. And so what you end up with is the um, urgent operational requirements to fill all the bits. They start taking away the capabilities that are required, so what's actually left is, um, is, is more doable. So what you end up doing is replacing some of the big things that need to be replaced um, alongside all this other stuff that you've got to meet the immediate requirements in theatre. And what you don't though, have then is um, a coherent... Uh, fleet of vehicles with uh, with some uh, efficiencies over the logistics and everything else. Right. Uh, so you've got lots of other problems for the longer term. You're going to have to have a more expensive maintenance. But it's addressing everything in procurement as a matter of at this end, do it that way, and that end, You're trying to get the balance right. And the balance between complexity and uh, simplicity and clear leadership and everything with straightforward programs on the other, um, you've got to get the balance in the middle right, just as you have to get the balance between competition with industry on the one hand and partnering with industry to keep them engaged in the longer term and give them money to keep them running um, on the other. And there are hundreds of other of these on the one hand, on the other hand, where do we go down the middle? There's another side of this, isn't there, that um, you sometimes think, well, get it, just imagine... You wake up on the lawn, not see the tanks on the lawn, but you wake up in the Christmas morning, and there it is. Tomorrow morning, you will see, um, you will see your astute class submarine, Eric. Mm-hmm. You will see more Type 45s, if that's what you really mm-hmm. want. You will see two aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. We'll see Eurofighter, Michael. You think we ought to have that? We'll see a family of vehicles, Fres. We may even see. The, uh, the personnel to drive these things, whether it be <coughs> aircraft or, or vehicles, um, and the maintainers, and a logistical train to keep them all in service, Julian. And a big army, which is the what the army. army want, you know. Yes, yep. yes. A big field army. Field army is an important word here. Yes, mm. come on. Uh, who would you give all this stuff to, Julian? Would you actually say, no, um, you're not getting it as you thought. I'm going to give it to other people. Well, I'll tell you what I'd do, for starters. I'd take all the <coughs> helicopters that the Air Force own off them and divide them up between the army and, and the navy. Uh, because Come on, tell uh, us why. Well, I'd do it because I don't think it's, it makes sense to have... Um, troop support for the army run by, uh, by by another service any more than it makes sense, though it doesn't happen yet, it's been suggested by a former chief of air staff that it should, uh, for airplanes that are going to fly over the sea to be flown by, by Royal Air Force guys. They should be flown by the service that operates in the sea. And I think you'd make great savings if you did that. Except in 82, Eric, <coughs> uh, if it hadn't have been perhaps for Royal Air Force pilots... 
the operation in the South Atlantic might have been difficult? Well, the GR3s were useful. I mean, and, and certainly, and a useful, and a useful addition. And, but uh, the only things we had, aren't they? No, they were, no. they were useful, actually, and they did more than that. I mean, they saved the day, goose green. No, what I'm saying is, I'm not suggesting that, that what we've done in the past is necessarily wrong, but I think you would make savings by saying, let's divide the helicopter force up and give them the army Apaches, which they have already, give them Chinooks, give them the, the, the troop lift helicopters, so they are <coughs> part of the, of the army <coughs> organization, and give the navy uh, all the helicopters they need, including um, search and rescue. And I would also say, actually, give them probably control over the uh, what one calls in, in old-fashioned terms a sort of coastal command type um, mm. aircraft as well. But, uh, Michael. The Royal Air Force might well do a bargain over helicopters if, on the other hand, they were given all the fixed-wing capability, which would include the Joint Strike Fighter when it came in. Um, and uh, one could argue, well, the efficient way to do it is, well, we'll do it all manned aircraft into one service. Because they're in one service, it doesn't mean that the individual uh, bits of the service, the arms, the wings, whatever, can't be... Um, very familiar and comfortable working in their specific environments. Or you could disband the this, is, this is a problem that goes back, this is a problem that goes back a hundred years, because the, uh, over this year, the Navy's been celebrating a hundred years of naval aviation, and the, it, it was immediately seen and recognised that because aircraft fly over the land and the sea, it may, might make sense to have a single service. Remember the Royal Flying Corps, created in 1912, had a military wing and a naval wing. They tended to grow apart. They were slammed back together again at the end of the First World War with the creation of the RAF, just at a time when admirals were realising how important having a fleet air arm was. And then you had years of wrangling before finally the Navy gets control of the fleet air arm back in, 19, in 1939. And there's been problems throughout. This is, this is a very old song, this. And there are, there are arguments on both sides. There are arguments for centralisation, there are arguments for specialisation. We've come through it with a typical British muddled compromise. We have the joint well, helicopter. Hang on, hang on. Every, everybody else does the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, and we're not, you know, we're not sort of peculiar, are we? No, but, are, but, no, but actually they don't. The thought of having a joint force flying from aircraft carriers shocks American naval aviators to to the quick. I mean, the, the American Army isn't supported by the uh, United States Air Force helicopters. It's supported by United States Army helicopters. So and the, uh, the, 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 the fixed-wing um, uh, uh, support as well in the, um, in the combat Corps. support. Yeah, and, and, yes, and the Army as well. So, but, but here we haven't got the resources for that, and so we have these compromises like Joint Force Harrier, like the Joint Helicopter Command, uh, 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 like trying to get the RAF to, to do everything in support of the Navy and the Army, which, which for institutional reasons it finds it quite hard to do. So these arguments continue, and they're sort of inherent, they're existential. I mean, it, it, it's hard to get out of them. What do you have to do to, to actually say, listen, if you want all this equipment that we've talked about... Um, this is what you've got to do to get it, because you've got to find some money from somewhere. Uh, you've got to perhaps take something from somebody else. Let's say, for example, Eric, if you want your uh, aircraft carriers, your two aircraft carriers, and your astute and mm -hmm. Type 45, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to... We are willing to, to nominate something that the RAF's yes, got, I, I the would, Army's I got. Have a, I have a strong contender, and it was mentioned by Paul, which is going to be kept and, in fact, is being emphasized. Some, some have, you know, have replaced the Harriers in Afghanistan. The Tornado Force. 
The tornado force is not even believed in by its own by its own air crew, as I found out in a visit to an RAF RAF station well, tell last, us why, last year. Because it's an old aeroplane. I mean, we've we've been, we've been talking about generations of jets. I mean, it's a third generation jet. It, it is it is obsolescent. It is obsolescent now. It needs a lot of money spent on it to to, to maintain its capability. And it doesn't even have a single role. And it it, it it's a. It, the fighter version is not very good at shooting down other fighters, uh, but it actually was meant to shoot down bombers. The strike version is OK, but it's, very, it's getting long in the tooth. It needs a lot of money spent on it. But, but the trouble is, of course, mo- a lot of the Air Force High Command are tornado people. They see the tornado as a longish-range strike aircraft, as what the Air Force is really all about. I would, oh, I, for the days they flew lightnings. I would be happy to see the RAF composed of typhoons and harriers. Until we get the joint combat aircraft. So you're going to take aircraft from them? Yes. Is that the third tranche of your affair? And vehement. Well, find some, find, find some way of getting round it. I know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, it. I know that's easier okay. said than done. Michael, sell it, what would you take? Uh, we, we, what um, equipment do services want? And you'd say no, because the overall defence budget won't stretch that far. Well, well, there's another way of looking at it, too. We can't afford it all, and also, why should we be doing it all on our own? And what are the, what are the occasions when we actually will be fighting on our own, where we need everything? And, um, and we then have to look in the NATO context, in the European context, and alongside the United States. What is it that an island power ought to have to contribute to all of that? Now, I'm not pushing the naval case particularly here, but there's one thing I would say you don't need, and that is you don't need um, a huge tank force because you've got all sorts of other nations who are geographically um, much more predisposed to maintaining that. Um, you could say that you get rid of you get rid of the uh, um, tanks. Well, that's main battle tanks. What anyway. we need main battle tanks. What you need is something portable. And uh, as Julian's already mentioned, you need something portable that can do high end stuff. And there is the problem there of having something portable that's tough enough. As the Americans have found with their striker yes. vehicle. And many would say you're not there yet um, in terms of what technology can provide. Mike Jackson said that on a number of occasions. I mean, if if, if, if push comes to shove, I totally agree with what Michael says. We've got to remember we live on an island. We live on an island that's the end of a very long peninsula called Europe, which has got sea on three sides of it. And we've got sea all around us, of course. And I think when push comes to shove, what we have to nurture to the bitter end is our maritime capability. And if the army is going to operate, it has to get there and it has to, has yeah. to be supported. And quite yeah. often that, that is vital. And what is more, I think also, and this is perhaps going outside the discussion a bit, if we have a government, which I suspect will say no more foreign adventurers, or at least no more foreign adventurers that will keep us tied to boots or big footprints on the ground and long concrete runways, this is where carriers come in, so you've got the mobility of the aircraft without committing yourself to having a big footprint on the ground. And they RAF aircraft. And the, bigger the, the bigger the army, the more it will be used. The problem is getting through the present uh, operational situation in Afghanistan. We can't yes. start cutting... Uh, boots on the ground in any way, whether it's army or marines, paras, um, uh, um, uh, 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 at the moment. And the problem is the short term versus long term. The longer term, uh, the to my mind, the 1998 street strategy is not totally inappropriate. We're looking for oh. highly agile forces with a highly specialised but contained army that can do all sorts of uh, early stuff. 
and I don't buy the argument that quick in, quick out is dated. It's, it's certainly dated if you're going to occupy countries and remove regimes. It's not dated if you're going to do Sierra Leone's and East Timor's and things like that. I couldn't yeah. agree more. There's another, there's another side of this, um, and it, it becomes increasingly important. Um, one of the things, presumably, all three services would like to have tomorrow morning is a perfect plan how to recruit all the people to drive, maintain, and to fight um, more people than they've got now because they, they, they haven't been able to keep recruiting up to the constant levels that they need. Or is that not true? Well, um, there is a problem that uh, in order to maintain a particular level of, of recruiting and, and manning, uh, that uh, you would need to, in your aspirations, exceed that level and fall back onto it. If you're running at 95 98% of the requirement that's defined, you're actually doing pretty well. You're not going to be allowed to be at 110%. And if you're going to be working to 110%, you'll get slapped on the wrist. Um, uh, so um, this doesn't address the issue of overstretch. The issue of overstretch is that one's doing too much, not that you're not recruiting to the levels that you've defined. Mm. Um, I wonder if we, we've, got, we've got about three or four <coughs> minutes. Um, the reality check, of course, um, that's C-H-E-C-K, mm-hmm. not uh, Q-U-E. Um, who do we, just suppose we get a lot of this kit, who do we anticipate in sending, Julian, the thank you letters? We all do because we're well-mannered. Uh, the Treasury, to the MOD, to the Prime Minister? To the British people, to the taxpayer. Yes. And say thank you very much. Do you think much. they'd bother that much? Um, well, I think they'd be, they'd be very pleased to be thanked. It's the first time they've ever been thanked in, in, in history. Also, I think I think the British people do actually expect Britain to do things in the world. They they, uh, they, they might not approve very much of the mess of the mess we got ourselves into into in Iraq and the way Afghanistan's gone as well. But but I think the British expect Britain to be a major player, to be a a a kind of great power of the second rank, and I think they would miss it if we couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, Michael, what about the um, the defence secretary? How much should we Expect. I mean, somebody once said to me, a defence secretary or any secretary of state, uh, you actually ask the question: Is are you good in cabinet? Um, and unless you're any good in cabinet, you're not much use to us in the department. Well, That's quite somebody to, to thank, isn't it? Well, the, the people I was going to thank alongside the British people would be, uh, first of all, the Prime Minister, who I'm not saying Gordon Brown doesn't realise he's at war, but who acts as though he is a Prime Minister at war in Afghanistan. And, and you have that hands-on leadership all the time. But you need a, a Secretary of State for Defence who is allowed to be, and is because of his own personality, the sort of statesman that one or two have been in the past. But that's what you really need. What about the Chiefs of Staff, anybody? Would you think? them can they make the case uh, well they, they have to and they try to uh, they sometimes do rather silly things like trying to do away with the harriers as the as the, as the chief of the air as the last chief of the air staff did but yes i mean they have to make their single service cases and, and of course and the, and the purple defense staff has to sort of help help provide military advice to balance that and a chief of defense staff michael boyce um, and his evidence to the chilcot inquiry 
you know, slapped over the wrist for making the point about the problems that he was told he wasn't being helpful and cooperative. That's exactly what he should be doing. And there is a culture that encourages the sort of chief of defence staff, of which there are other examples, who are much more part of the politics and less... Um, a less uh, defining feature of what the military case is and that should be supported by uh, the right chiefs of staff and in particular the the joint command system the PGHQ etc. Okay, fantasy time fantasy time if you could ask for one bit of kit which isn't which is out of this world almost in fantasy what would it be Julian? Um, imagine something Oh, I can imagine something which would be armoured swimming amphibious vehicles Yes I might go along. Armoured, swimming, amphibious field. The Didn't Amtrak. the Russians have a well, P-70? Well, the Americans had them, and we yeah. had them in, in the Second World War. And you need a crop of them that are autonomous. Okay, you don't need people in them. And they've got to have all the, um, the artificial intelligence to do all sorts of stuff. Right. Eric, what would you... Um... I'm always impressed by these exoskeletons, which what are, are they? sold, which are sort of, which are sort of uh, um, things you, things infantrymen can get into, and this allows them to jump over buildings and 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 and, and, and gives them enhanced protection too. I mean, that could... oh, that's called an ex-prime minister. What about <laughs> three billion or whatever it costs in Afghanistan war fund? Just give it to Homeland Security. We don't have to go anywhere; they can actually fix it at home. Michael, last word to you. Uh, well, it's certainly um, defining the military. Uh, capacity for homeland security to do all those things which would be much cheaper if you had the military doing them because they're only used occasionally and the military are good at that stuff would certainly be, I can't specify the capabilities, but that's certainly an important role for the military for the future Okay, well that's it for this day my thanks to Eric Grove, Michael Codden and to Julian Thompson We'll be back next week with uh, what happened in the past ten years and what's going to happen in future, until then Happy Christmas the Treasury. <laughs>